were in the book of Acts and two weeks ago. We did Paul's farewell to the Ephesian church. We then went through the parable of the sower. We went to Yeshua's letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation. And we went to Paul's letter to the Ephesians and correlated all those. So today we're going to get Paul to Rome, God willing, and get him arrested. Let's just start at the beginning because there is something that goes on in verse 4. Uh, and when we had parted from them, we set sail, came by a straight course to coast, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship across to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. We had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, and we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre, for the ship was unlo- to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So this is going to be the first of a series of warnings to Paul as he goes on his way down to Jerusalem, each of them telling him that it is not going to end well for him personally if he goes to Jerusalem. So I'm now down to verse 5. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board ship, and they were coming home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we parted and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So that's back in Acts 6, Acts 6-5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. And they sat before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So this is Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the deacons that was originally chosen back in Acts 6. Verse 9. So Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people were urging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Yeshua. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So what I'm suggesting to you here, Paul has got his own set of instructions, and he's going to follow them. Verse 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So now we're in Jerusalem. This is where the action picks up. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. 
remember that last time he was there was back where we had the Council of Jerusalem. So Paul was there at, at the Council of Jerusalem, Paul, Barnabas, so forth. So the last time he was in Jerusalem and met with the elders of the home church, if you will, was back in Acts chapter 15. So now he's going to meet with them again. So verse 19. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. One of the things that's going to happen in a minute is when he gets there, the troublemakers are going to be the Jews from Asia. And remember, they're the ones that have been throwing him out of churches, stoning him, throwing him in prison, causing riots, etc., etc. So they're the ones that are going to be the troublemakers at the entrance to the temple. The Jews who are of the party from Asia are not Messianic Jews. They are non-Messianic Jews. They're the ones that have been causing trouble for Paul during his time in Turkey and Philippi and so forth. They are going to be the ones who, when they recognize him at the temple, are going to cause a riot here. Now, we also have, we could go back to verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. So what you are talking about there are Messianic Jews. But they are zealous for the law of Moses. What they have been told, I am presuming by these Jews from Asia who are going to cause trouble, is that this guy Paul is rumbling around in the diaspora and he's telling Jews all over the place that they no longer have to follow the law of Moses. So the Jews from Asia are causing doubt and so forth about Paul among the Messianic. In other words, this guy Paul is not zealous for the law. He's doing something else. He's teaching some kind of new religion. And what James is saying to him is, what you're going to do is you're going to go to the temple and you're going to sacrifice and clear a vow, and they will all then be able to see that the, the rumors about you are not correct. So that's the object of the exercise. Now, you remember earlier on, Paul was on a sea voyage, and it said he cut his hair because he had taken a vow. So Paul is also in need of clearing his Nazarite vow, just as are these other people. So what James is saying is, all right, these guys have to 
separate themselves from the vow, parenthesis not stated, but I'm saying, Paul, so do you. So what you're going to do is you're going to go and you're going to present yourself. You're going to pay the expenses and you're all going to be cleared of your vow. And everybody will see that you walk according to the law because you're sacrificing and you're taking the Nazarite vow seriously and all these kinds of things. And they will be able to see by your actions that these rumors about you are untrue. So that's the setup. A couple of things. Thing one is you'll notice that there isn't anything in here about Jewish believers in Messiah abandoning Torah. Quite the opposite, in fact. And in fact, they are hearing rumors that this guy Paul is out there telling people something else besides Moses, and they're upset about it. So the idea that the early church, which was mostly Jewish initially, thought that the sacrifice of Yeshua had done away with the law is nonsense. Paul doesn't think the sacrifice of Yeshua has done away with the law either. He is on his way to sacrifice and clear his Nazarite vow. And we see from other passages of Scripture that when he takes on Timothy as a disciple, he has a Jewish mother and a Greek father, he has Timothy circumcised in order that Timothy may be a proper Jew when he is traveling with him. So in all cases, Paul upholds the law. So the argument in Christianity that somehow the law has been done away with is nonsense. That, that is not true. There also is the letter from the Council of Jerusalem to the Gentiles. And clearly that letter says that the standards for Gentiles are different than the standards for Jews. So there are things in the law of Moses, circumcision and so forth, that apply to Jews who are under the covenant. Gentiles can come into the kingdom of God. They can be perfectly good believers. They can come to church. They will go to heaven and you know all of this, all of that kind of stuff. But there isn't any requirement that, for example, they circumcise their children. There isn't any requirement that they eat kosher. It's simply a requirement is they not eat blood. They abstain from blood and from strangled. So the laws that the Jews are required to follow are a superset of what is required of Gentiles. All that's required of Gentiles is abstain from sexual immorality, from blood, from things strangled, and so forth. And then you can come in to the synagogue, you can have table fellowship, you can hear the word of Moses read, all that kind of stuff. And you have the Holy Spirit, so it's clearly obvious that God has accepted you and you're members of the kingdom of God. And what we're doing is we're giving you the minimum set of behavioral standards that you have to follow. What the church has done is confuse that with the superset that Jews are required to follow. And what they've done is they've said, well, this, it's all done away with. And that's not correct. None of it's done away with. Just some of it doesn't apply to Gentiles. So, for example, there are parts of the law that don't apply to Jill. She can't go into the temple and sacrifice no matter what because she's not a man. 
doesn't mean that the law of sacrifice or the priesthood has been done away with. It just means Joel doesn't apply to Joel. So there's lots of stuff like that. And what the church has done is conflated that and in the process then said that this whole law of Moses is done away with. And part of that, by the way, is a heresy by a guy named Marcion who taught that the God of the Old Testament and Jesus were two different beings, and you don't want to have anything to do with that God of the Old Testament who was wrathful and vengeful and petty and all that kind of stuff. And so no bad idea ever goes away. They just get recycled. And the distancing of the Jews from the Gentiles, Christians, was a mutual thing that happened over several centuries. And by the end of that, the Christians believe the law is done away with, and the Jews believe the Christians are lawless. Keeping Torah is a big thing. And like I said, there are parts of Torah that you can't keep because you're a woman. There are parts of Torah I can't keep because I'm a man. Torah is a very big thing. And what is necessary is to accurately determine what parts of it apply to you. Let me try this. Revelation. The new heaven and the new earth. You have the Hebrews, not the Jews, the Hebrews, are in Jerusalem. The nations are around the new Jerusalem. I regard that as being analogous to the camp in the wilderness, where you have the Levites are around the tabernacle, and the rest of the tribes are arrayed around them. The Levites have special duties special responsibilities, special privileges, all of which have to do with their relationship to the temple. So pop that up a level, and then you have Hebrews, who are the people of the covenant, who have special duties, responsibilities, and privileges in the New Jerusalem, and the Gentiles then are arrayed around them in the same sense. They're all part of the kingdom of God. They just have different responsibilities and different privileges. I mean, it's just the way it is. And it's just like in here. We study Moses, and there's things in Moses that I can't keep. And there's things in Moses that you can't keep. And there's things that we can only do in Jerusalem. And there's things we can only do when there's a temple. So what's going on here in Acts, then, is the Jews non-Messianic Jews, basically out of Asia, have come back to Jerusalem and have been spreading rumors that this guy Paul is doing something else. And I'm going to suggest to you that part of that is pure malice. Part of that is confusion over what he's saying to the Gentiles and what he is saying to the Jews. And what James wants to do is have Paul publicly clear a Nazarite vow, which involves a week's worth of purification, bringing a sacrifice, and so forth. He wants all of that done in public so that the believers in the way will see that the rumors about Paul are not true. There's no attempt being made here to convince the Jews from Asia because they're not going to be convinced no matter what. They don't like the guy. He's caused trouble in their city. He's, well, he may cause trouble in their city, but they blame it on him. So we're not trying to convince 
non-members of the way, we are trying to convince members of the way, which is Messianic Jews, who are also zealous for the law, that Paul is kosher. Let's pick it up now at verse 22. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Okay, so this, that's sort of a 25 words or less. This is the requirements on the Gentiles, which are way different than the requirements on the Hebrews. The way I describe it, the requirements on the Hebrews are a superset of what's required of the Gentiles. Remember back in Acts 15, it said, Moses is taught in the synagogue every Sabbath. Let him go and listen to Moses. So as you sit there and listen to Moses, you are going to find out that you need to have a parapet around your roof so that your guests don't fall off and break their heads. You're going to find out how to handle an ox that gets loose and gores somebody. You're going to find out about not murdering and committing adultery. The point is, once Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit and have come into the kingdom of God, the idea is that they will go to the synagogue and they will hear the scriptures read. The scriptures will then take care of things like murder and adultery and parapets around your house and all of those kinds of things, which are civil laws. That all applies. You can steal a sheep anywhere in the world and they've got some way to deal with it. So the idea that the Bible deals with it this way is not foreign to anybody. And in fact, we don't deal with it the same way the Bible does in the United States. We don't replace five for one or any of that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of the Torah that is, how do you get along in a civil society? There's a lot of it that has to do with how you deal with the temple. There's a lot of it that has to do with being God's chosen people. You know, one of the things that I I have come to believe, right, wrong, or indifferent, I've come to believe it, is that eating unclean food makes you spiritually stupid. And part of the reason for the diet is that the Israelites were expected to be able to be in the presence of God and be able to hear from God. And having a diet that makes you spiritually stupid is counterproductive to that requirement. But that's Johnnyology, and you don't have to like that if you don't want to. The object of the exercise here, obviously, is to spike the rumors that have been spread that Paul is starting his own religion. That, that's the object of the exercise. So I'm all the way down to 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and they went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. So, clearing a Nazarite vow requires the sacrifice of a lamb. And you also got to take your hair and you got to burn it under the sacrifice and a whole bunch of other stuff, which leads to my belief that Paul has been carrying his hair in a baggie ever since that 
trip because he's going to burn his hair too. But there's considerable expense there because you've got to buy a small flock of sheep here. And Paul is going to cover for all of them. So he's going in to give notice that he's done, but there's going to be a seven-day purification period between the time he gives notice and the time the sacrifice happens. So verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, remember these are the guys that he's been wrangling with for his entire missionary journey, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. What's happened is they have stirred up riots, so they're getting good at it. They've had lots of practice stirring up riots against Paul. So they just moved their act to Jerusalem. Verse 30. When all the city were stirred up, and the people ran together, they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. <laughs> then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So he's got a crowd stirred up, a mob stirred up. The Romans don't have any idea what's going on. So verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian man who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Silesia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Silesia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So what he's saying is, I am just as zealous as you are. And in other circumstances, I was part of this riot. Because remember, he was. Verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. 
as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Yeshua of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand, the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. By the way, notice that he is saying Ananias is not a rebel. He is thought of well by all the Jews in the city. Verse 14. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And upon this word, they listening to him, then raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So he's doing fine. He's speaking Hebrew. He's giving his testimony. But as soon as he says, I got sent by Yeshua to the Gentiles, Bedlam erupts. So, a couple of things. Paul has come full circle. Because remember, back at the stoning of Stephen, he would have been a member of this same mob. And that mob, as well as the priests and normative Judaism, is of the opinion that followers of the way ought to be bound and put in prison and slain and so forth. So Paul is admitting to being a follower of the way. He's also saying that I got sent to the Gentiles. Now that is just naturally going to rub the people who are trying to wipe out the way crossways. If this being you're listening to who is giving you supernatural direction is telling you to go teach the Gentiles, then clearly the one you're listening to is not God, it's some other spirit. Because they don't accept the way. And Paul himself did not accept the way before Yeshua himself knocked him off his ass and, and grabbed him by the necktie and said, I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. And at that point, Paul's perspective changed. But it took that kind of an event to get Paul's attention. 
The rest of this mob has not had such an event. So they are still firm and confirmed in their belief that the way is a heresy. I will suggest he's given his testimony and saying, this is how I got to where I am, and oh, by the way, I have not taught anybody not to follow Torah. What he will later say, I've always kept the law and the customs of our people. And I suspect he was going to say that here, except when he said, I got sent to the Gentiles, everybody just went ballistic on him, and he couldn't get another word in.